This is Soccer Pilgrim, the podcast dedicated to soccer and travel, where each stadium is shrine and its fans delay people. For the traveler, it is another culture to explore. Welcome to the Soccer Pilgrim podcast with Jason Kim. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Soccer Pilgrim. I'm your host, Jason Kim. And today's episode of Soccer Pilgrim in the season of soccer and war, I'll be talking about two clubs that are related and you'll see why they're related is kind of self-evident and these two clubs aren't necessarily at war with each other but it's what they represent is the reason for this episode and so the first club i'll be talking about is deportivo palestino palestino palestine and then the other one is Beitar jerusalem and israel as you can tell, an Israeli club and a Palestinian club, although two different countries, you could see why they might be at odds. Not so much because they are sporting rivals. I mean, they're ones in Chile and ones in Israel, but it's because of what they represent. And this is why I created Soccer Pilgrim, because I became fascinated with how external cultures find its way through soccer and is expressed through the game, either as fans or as players. And some of these clubs create their entire image and identity is based on those historical conflicts, as we've seen before with, you know, with Celtic or Rangers. And the similar case is with Palest- uh, Deportivo Palestino and Beitar Jerusalem for different reasons. So I'll start the conversation by saying that I'm not here to talk or, cr- or provide criticisms or political criticisms on the state of Israel or whatever's happening in Palestine, because that's not what I'm interested in. And I don't want to get political. But those things will be mentioned because they do influence soccer. They do influence how the game is entertain- is uh, consumed rather and expressed. Thereby, I will talk about it, but I'm not here to say who's wrong or who's right. I'm just here to say what it is, be objective as possible. So that being said, I want to start the conversation by talking about Deportivo Palestino. Interesting club. I learned about them in high school through my friends who are all Arab, who are Arab, and they were impressed that there was such a club that exists in Chile. So I decided to look into it, and they're not the biggest club. They play at the Estadio Municipal de la Cisterna, which holds 8,000 people. In the first division, they've only won two times in 1955 and 1978. And they've only won three Copa Chile titles, which is in 1975, 77, and 2008. So they're not a big club, but that's really not the point of them. They're... They were made for an immigrant community. I mean, they were made by Palestinian immigrants in 1920, and they were made to participate in a colonial soccer competition in Chile. And I guess after appearing in a competition or appearing in, yeah, appearing in that colonial competition, they've eventually become a pro club. Like we've seen with the other clubs where they all start out as just like a community of people getting together to play the game. One thing leads to another, and now they're a professional football club. That's what it seems like for a lot of these teams. Usually as a North American, when I think of sports, when I think of sports teams, I assume it's because there's a large enough market for the team. North American sports feel more business than soccer. To see a professional sports team that's founded by immigrants is definitely new to me. Celtic has a very similar dynamic with Deportivo Palestino, both being immigrants and just trying to fit in, I guess, and try to do something with their time. And when I think of North American sports, you don't really have those stories. You sort of have a stories of... I guess similar to, let's say, Liverpool or Arsenal, where it's just a community of people of, let's say, dock workers, factory workers. After work, they get together to play some sport. And then, you know, now you have this mega franchise, kind of like the Canadians. Montreal Canadiens was 
pretty much French Canadian farmers and uh, factory workers that first played for the Montreal Canadiens. That was like the initial team, it seemed, uh, if I remember correctly. But then when you have a club like Deportivo Palestino, you are reminded of the community aspect. When you look at the name itself, you could tell that if I was a Palestinian or even just an Arab living in Chile, I would be pretty down for this club. If I could watch the game and support them, I would. But also looking at the clubs like Deportivo Palestino reminds me why I'll always be fascinated with soccer. As I said just before, there's expressions of cultures and politics will always find its way into football. With the new conflicts in Israel in the last few months, Deportivo Palestino, out of solidarity what was happening in Palestine, they came out wearing Palestinian scarves. You know, some of you have seen those scarves at protests. The big, it's like a really big one with white and black. The white and black ones, you often see... Uh, for a lot of people, you often see the red and white ones that are put on over that people wear over their heads. It's similar to that style, except the black and white one. When you see Arab people wearing a protest, it's a very specific meaning that it's sort of it's be it's become a symbol of the struggle of Palestinians, you know, or yeah, pretty much I guess in a way. Although it has cultural and ethnic ties to scarves, because certain scarves have different styles and they belong to certain countries. Like there's a Syrian style, a Lebanese style, I think. There's a Palestinian style. You know, anyway, don't want to get too much into it. But Deportivo Palestino wore those scarves out of solidarity for what was happening in Israel and Palestine because that scarf is now a symbol. So when you observe these things and you notice these things happening, whether expressed by the fans or players, you can tell where they're coming from or what their worldviews are or what's their background or what culture they come out of. It's a lot of reflections of that. You could see it. So when you have a club like Deportivo Palestino wearing that scarves dedicated to what's happening, it gives the match more stakes for not just the fans, but also for the players. There's something to play for. It's no longer just about winning three points. It's because It's a moment of validation for your club or your people or what you believe in or where you're from and it, it transcends sports for a moment so when deportivo palestino whether there's peace in israel peace in palestine or not whenever deportivo palestino wins it's really a little win for palestine you may not see it as that and people like to observe and consume sports objectively and through and maybe through purely sporting lens as entertainment and you know that's fine it's still sports at the end of the day but a lot of people need to feel good about themselves and to symbolically place a win for the country of Palestine onto this club. I mean, that's understandable. It makes you feel like it's still a victory of some sort. And everyone needs that, you know? It reminds me of when, you know, Iraq won the Asian Cup in 2006 when the United States was fully invaded and occupying Iraq. And they still won the Asian Cup while playing in Jordan. For Iraqi people, although I wouldn't say defeated, but definitely in a state of war and trauma and chaos for Iraq to win the Asian cup. It makes your country feel good. You feel good about yourself. You feel better about yourself. And for Deportivo Palestino, for any Palestinians around or more around the world, rather their win should resonate with them. Although it's not as big as Iraq winning the Asian cup, but it's, it's something it's, you know, smaller wins. When you accumulate smaller wins, you might win a war. So, that's the way I like to see things. I did more research at Deportivo Palestino and I didn't really find much history because they just seem to be a small club just sort of hanging in there and just, you know, competing, playing. And I, like I said, there isn't really much more to say. Perhaps I could dig a little more, but at the same time, I, it's everything seems quite straightforward. But what always touched me about 
this story is definitely the fact that they are that they're community of immigrants that still express how they feel and are still connected deeply connected to issues back home despite being perhaps as a club three generations oh like three generations of separation from their original palestinian immigrants you know from the 1920s to now that's a hundred years that's three generations of people so this club is three generations at least of palestinian chileans and they're still expressing their concern of what's happening in palestine on the other hand in israel we got a club like Beitar jerusalem a team founded on being 100% a Jewish slash Zionist team in Israel. This is a club that has gained a lot of controversy over the years for its one group of fans called La, Famili La Familia. La Familia, you would think, there's two things that come to mind. You probably think of Mafia <laughs> or you either think of a family-friendly club. It's like, welcome to the family. It's not. I guess I guess the family in this case perhaps leads more towards the mafia side, except not very cool. Well, the mafia is not cool to begin with; it's still organized crime. But anyway, um, a family are so there's, it's a group of fans within Beitar Jerusalem, and they're known to be very proud of their racism. They they sing and brag about their racism. They they pride themselves of being Israel's club, meaning like. What I mean by Israel's club, they, they have a policy where they only sign Israeli slash Jewish players. I've been watching videos of them. I've been watching videos of their fans online on YouTube. They said that they were, you know, they had Christian players. They rather have Christian players than Muslim players. As a matter of fact, they don't want any Arab or Muslim players. One good example, The Guardian did a pretty decent video on YouTube. And just to tell you how these La Familia fans of the Beitar Jerusalem are, they signed a Nigerian player, Nadala Ibrahim, a Muslim. And he was on the team briefly 2005 on loan from Maccabi Tel Aviv, another team in Israel. He played four games. He was supported by the coach at the time. But he left after being mobbed by Beitar fans. He, he returned to Maccabi Tel Aviv and soon returned to Nigeria. He, he essentially got kicked out of the country by this, the fans of this club. And then in 2013, the, the club signed two Chechenian players. Chechnya is at the post-Soviet Union. Chechnya was one of those uh, states in Russia that tried separating from Russia, and they're mostly Muslim. So Chechnyans are majority Muslim, and when they were signed to Tel, to not Tel Aviv, when they were signed to uh, Beitar, uh, Jerusalem, the fans showed up to the training session and were booing those players, saying insulting, racist things towards them for being Muslim or whatever. A lot of fans were very, very, very upset that they signed Muslim players because they were very their Zionist ideas completely infiltrated into football into their club so they want to pretty much create a Zionist team the same way they want to create a Zionist state for those who don't know Zionism is a political ideology where they believe is the state of Israel should belong to the Jewish people all of it including Palestine all of it should be Jewish ownership or Jewish government if you will but the important thing about Zionism that you must remember, it's a political movement, not a religious movement. And the man who came up with it, I'm blanking out on his name, wanted a state of Israel for Jewish people, but he wasn't thinking in a religious context. He's thinking of it in a political and a cultural and ethnic context. Because this idea came out of after World War II, where pretty much a guy was like, no one wants us, so why can't we have our own country? Which is, you know, it's a fair thing to say after such a tra traumatic event, but... That's what it is. 
except a lot of people who tend to support these clubs are definitely lean more towards the right wing. Another famous example, when they won the league title, the Prime Minister of Israel, who is on the conservative spectrum, on the right wing spectrum, is a supporter of Beitar Jerusalem. Whether he's a fan or not, I don't know, but he's definitely a supporter, whatever that means. <laughs> okay, here's another example of here's another example of uh, Beitar fans freaking out about uh, Arabs and Muslims and being really like against any Arab or Muslim teams. In, two, in 2019, Beitar fans, Beitar fans Association La Familia, which is the the ones who are very overt with the racism demanded that Ali Mohammed, a Christian from Niger who signed for the club, change his name as Mohammed sounded too Muslim. I'm reading off Wikipedia. Leading the club's owner, Moshe Hoge, to threaten to sue the fans. What? It's just one sentence, one run-on one, uh, one run sentence. But basically, in 2019, they signed a, a, an, Afri- an African player, and his name is... <laughs> His his name is Ali Mohammed. He's, he's Christian. His name is Ali Mohammed. That's it's more funny than anything. Um, and obviously the fans freaked out. They're like, we don't mind. He's Christian. It's just that his name is too Muslim. And that's our problem. And then the the chairman, who's probably the owner of the clubs, I could sense he's kind of annoyed. He's like, I just want to win. I again, I didn't research the the club owner's uh, political leanings, but as any club owner. Or as an owner of a business, you want to make a profit. And in sports, how do you make a profit? By winning. And how do you win? By getting the best players. That's why it shouldn't matter about someone's race and ethnicity or religion or sexuality. Who gives a shit? As long as that person could win you a title and get you across that line, that's all that matters. So for me, I don't want to see Beitar Jerusalem ever, 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 ever succeeding. Because it will just, just, it will justify and validate their whole project of being fucking overtly racist. You know, I, I and I'm, and again, in that Guardian interview, and it's, uh, towards the beginning, they were interviewing one fan who said, I don't have, he's just, he says, like, I don't believe all, Ar- obviously not all Arabs are terrorists, not all Muslims are terrorists, he said that, but he was like, but I just don't want them in my team, <laughs> which is, um, it's an uncomfortable nuance because how he could just be saying that in front of camera saying that I don't think all Arabs are terrorists. He could probably just be saying that to save face, most likely. Who knows? But what if he did mean that? What if that one fan really did mean saying that I don't think all Arabs are terrorists. However, I don't like him. So that's just him clarifying his racism. That's him being very specific as to why he doesn't like them, which is it's not because of terrorists. I just don't like them, which is I don't. They're both equally just horrible. And more examples of, but but okay, to be fair to Beitar Jerusalem, this is not representative of all the Beitar fans. Are majority Beitar fans Zionist? Most likely. Are they studi support the state of Israel? Most likely. But are they bad people? I don't think they're all bad people. I think I think what a lot of news agencies are trying to also hit is that I just want to be specific. I don't think all the Beitar fans are racist per se. I think what a lot of news agencies that cover this club are trying to say is that the controversy lies in the group La Familia among the Beitar supporters who are very who are very overt with the racism. They sing racist chants. They they take Zionism and take it way to the to the to the extreme. And that being said, I don't think all of the Beitar fans are racist. There's always nuance in any controversy or any difficult subject. There's always going to be a nuance where there are people who might support Beitar Jerusalem, but might not even hold those intensely hateful and racist emotions. 
they might feel like I would like to see a team that's 100% Jewish and Israeli just to say that it just to see it as a challenge for ourselves kind of the same way how Athletic Bilbao only signed Basque players to not as a way uh not as a statement of uh sovereignty or separation although low key it is but I see it as a challenge can we do it cuz it's soccer is such a globalized sport and if you can win by signing only local players that's wild that that would be wildly impressive that's why Athletic Bilbao is impressive they have never been relegated and they've only signed the Basque players from day one. Impressive. So when it's stuff like that, I don't mind. And I'm pretty sure a lot of more level-headed Beitar fans might feel the same way. They might be pro-Israel, they might be pro-Zionism, but they may not be necessarily in favor of the violence that's happening. Who knows? But like I said, there's a lot of nuance because life is nuanced and you know we're, we live on a spectrum, not black and white. And the people who have this intense hateful racist energy want the world to be black and white because that's what they're making it out to be but my experience of soccer has taught me that the world isn't black and white it's it's a spectrum it's shades you have players that you have a spectrum of players from good to bad and all their levels all their performance levels will vary based on their experience you know how much game time do they have overall as a person or who do they play against do they play in a very competitive environment? What's their body type? Every body type has a different perk to soccer. If you're a tall guy, you're going to win all the headers and you'll be really good on the ball. But you might not be as agile and quick as a shorter player with a better center of gravity. Or you could be like me, 5'10", and just have an average game. <laughs> just average everything, I suppose. So I can go on and on and on and on about Beitar Jerusalem. Because there's a lot to talk about, especially with all the controversy. But that being said, I think it is... I think it's only also fair to mention their honors or what they've won. Some people say, no, don't mention what they've won. These, you know, they don't deserve to be recognized. And I was like, yeah, I hear that. But also in terms of sports, I think it's important to recognize who's won what. For Beitar Jerusalem, they've won the Israeli championship six times, the Israeli Premier League. Or unless the, they did like England and they changed Israeli championship to Premier League in like a couple years ago. I don't know. They've won the State Cup seven times. There's the something called the Toto Cup that they've won three times, the Super Cup twice, and the Lillian Cup once. Okay, well, they won a bunch of cups. So they're a pretty successful club. So relatively speaking, they're, they're a relatively successful club within Israel, at least. So we could probably put them at, like, maybe not mid-table, but maybe in the towards the higher up tables. Bezar Jerusalem plays in the Teddy Stadium. Teddy, like, teddy bear. And this stadium has a capacity of 34,000. It's pretty big. It's a good stadium. The ground has been dubbed Gehinom, literally translated to hell by club supporters for the hostile atmosphere it presents to visiting teams and their fans. Yeah, I mean, if you're a stadium full of like right-wing supporters, then I assume they're going to go ham on you for sure. And the stadium was named after Jerusalem, longtime Jerusalem mayor, Teddy Kolek. So 34,000 seat capacity stadium is a pretty good stadium. To me, in my head, no matter what country you're in, you are a mid to high level club. If you have, if you're in a stadium that sits more than 40,000, I consider you a high level club because, you know, only you could be able, only a high level club could be able to consistently pull 40,000 people to games every week. I know I usually like to talk about history first and talk about everything else. I think with this one, I just realized that I'm kind of going the opposite, talk about modern and going into the history. And when you look at the history of Beitar Jerusalem, it's a lot. Um, even on Wikipedia, I'm like, that. you know, there's a lot that's happened because of all the political connections with Zionism, which makes it 
if this was a documentary about the history of Beitar Jerusalem, but from like an objective point of view, it would be a fascinating documentary because there's a lot of, a lot of shit. Um, like the owners of the club being connected to, what, what are they called? The Irgun? Irgun movement? I guess you could call it a Zionist militant group or a Zionist militia group operating within Israel or within Palestine. And there was connections between the owners of the club and, yeah, between the owners of the club and that outlawed group, militia group. So from early history, in the history of Beitar Jerusalem, they had connections with right-wing Zionist militia groups. And you know they have a lot of history in this club when when you... I'm doing a lot of my research on them based on Wikipedia and based on also other documentaries or news articles I found online. But if you just look at Wikipedia, which I like to go to Wikipedia, just gave myself a basic information of what I'm looking into. But if you look at the table contents on the left side, They've separated the history into like eight or nine different categories by decades, pre to 1948, 1948 to the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and 2020s. They've separated, categorized each decade for this club. That means there is so much going on in the history of this club in terms of all of it. I mean, this is a club that's highly controversial. What football club is that actively involved? Like when you're reading this, it's like, it's like, yeah, it's football, but you could tell that there's more going on behind the scenes when you read it between the lines. You know, they're talking about a lot about soccer. This happened, that happened. They're very, also, but also, they're, they are a very successful club in Israel, so they would have a long sporting history, to be fair to them. But every time, you just always get a sense that there's something happening behind the scenes and always this uh, Zionism that is influencing everything. But then again, they do call their stadium hell because that's, that's how much they intimidate the opposing fans. And what I find interesting is that in the early history of the of this team, when they first started playing, they started out as a youth team, like yeah, a youth team for like kids and stuff. And but they were only playing against Arab teams and Muslim teams and also Christian teams, which is like for an intensely Israeli Zionist club, it's sort of interesting that your history started with alongside these other ethnicities. But you know, anyway, so that's everything. I feel like I've exhausted everything I could talk about Beitar Jerusalem, but this episode was to give you an idea that. There's Deportivo Palestino, who was formed as among Palestinian immigrants that just needed something to do and also perhaps integrate into Chilean society, and they seemed like they have. And also, you could tell that, you know, I get, it's almost like David and Goliath, again, a lot of Jews, I don't want to say Jews, a lot of Zionists will view Israel itself as David and then the entire Middle East as Goliath on top of Israel. That I could, I could see that. However, if you want to talk about just between Israel and Palestine, it's kind of obvious that Palestine is David. No offense. I don't, that not making any judgment call or judgment value or anything like that. I'm just seeing, trying, just uh, making connections here. And you can even see that in the football, how, look at like a Deportivo Palestino, 8,000 seats, not that many wins, not that many league titles. They're a relatively small club in Chile that not a lot of people know about internationally. Then you have Beitar Jerusalem, who perhaps more football fans internationally recognize because of all the controversy. And also, if you want to compare it to the, the today's situation between Israel and Palestine, I mean, Beitar Jerusalem is clearly the bigger club. 34,000 people, more wins, more success, more titles. They are Goliath, if you want to compare them with Deportivo Palestino. A lot of people say, that, well, that's unfair. It's like comparing Real Madrid with some other Real, some other team with the name Real in like Latin America. Of course, yeah, that wouldn't be fair. However, if you were to look at the Palestinian-Israel conflicts now, I mean, one has a world-class military and the other one is pretty much just a bunch of militias. 
That's all I'm saying. Nothing wrong with having a world-class military. Like I said, I I talked a little bit about politics just then, and I, I kind of feel uncomfortable doing that, but that's how I see it. I'm not here to demonize anyone. I'm just here to giving you my opinion how I see things. I wish there wasn't so much conflict in Israel-Palestine, but this is the way of the world, and this is what it is now. And trust me, in all my years of doing model United Nations, Israel-Palestine is a subject that not even at the model United Nations do people want to talk about it because it's it's too hot. It will always be hot. And you could tell how hot it is just based on how Beitar Jerusalem fans express their views in the games. Same thing with Deportivo Palestina wearing those scars as a sign of solidarity with Palestine before a game. It's an international message. But anyway, thank you for listening. This is the final episode of Soccer and War. I know there's definitely a lot more I could have covered and went more into more in depth with, but if you feel like there's something I missed, feel free to message me and DM me and, and talk to me about it. I don't mind talking about this. This is cool. As long as we can keep it level-headed and respectful, I can talk about anything. That being said, thank you for listening. If you want to DM me and talk some more, you could follow me at Jason underscore Jisoo. I also have Clubhouse now because it's officially out for Android, and you could find it, you could find me as Jason Jisoo Kim on at clubhouse as well so that being said thanks for listening thank you for being an audience thank you for listening to this season of soccer and war for all those who still support me on soccer pilgrim thank you so much your listening your listenership is greatly valued to me and my friend caribou it's just a two-man team that we work on this and yeah and you can also catch me on the darby cast podcast that comes out every friday morning you know with tug one ak so that being said thank you so much thank you for being an audience This is Soccer Pilgrim. Please like, share, subscribe to this podcast. My name is Jason Jisoo Kim from Montreal. This is Soccer Pilgrim. Thank you.